0: Welcome back to the Disruptors Podcast, I'm your host Sean Johnson. Today is a big day for us because today we're unveiling our new company. It's called Manifold and it combines our advisory practice formerly known as Digital Intent, our venture investing activity formerly done under the umbrella of Founder Equity, along with a new incubation studio. This reorganization is several years in the making and is an exciting new chapter for us. And the goal is to create a machine for perpetual value creation. I thought it would make sense to celebrate this milestone to bring in my partner, Joe Dwyer, to talk about the rationale behind the change, as well as how we got here. Joe's a fellow professor in the innovation and entrepreneurship program at Northwestern and is legit one of the smartest people I've ever met in my life. The conversation is in depth, perhaps somewhat controversial, but I think you're gonna find it super interesting. And with that, let's go to Joe. All right, Joe, thanks for being here. For folks that maybe listen to the podcast and and they know about digital intent, but might not necessarily be aware of founder equity, which we obviously own as well. Why don't we start there maybe with the discussion of kind of the journey and the background that's kind of gotten us from the beginnings to kind of where we are now.
1: Sure. Well, you know, obviously you were there when we started this whole thing 10 years ago and the three founding partners, two of them are on this call had a discussion about what we thought the future of of early stage was, but also what we thought the the future of enterprise innovation was and that there was an intersection and a huge set of opportunities. So I don't think any of us was really interested in building just a, a traditional uh, consultancy, right? There were much bigger opportunities and much greater things uh, to do than that. And one of our hypotheses was that the pace and nature of disruption in the modern economy is is increasing rapidly. You know, there's some dispute about that. You can get academic. It's part of what I teach in in one of my Kellogg courses. But I think for now we'll just we'll just have to agree that there is a, a significant rate increase in change. And and many companies that are very very good at operating a known business model are not nearly as good at creating new business models and and expanding them. So the consultancy, obviously, that's one of the big areas uh, where we focus. But that's also the same set of activities that uh, people engage in at the early stage in terms of startups. And at the time when we started this, I was working as a, a venture capitalist at, a, at another firm here in town, a great firm, you know, and learned a ton and you know loved the industry. But at the same time, saw some significant weaknesses, I think, generally in the industry. And I think the simplest way to discuss it is to say, you know, lay out a few facts and then try to explain why they could be true. So early stage venture accounts for approximately 25% of the gross domestic product of the United States. Uh, And that is measured in terms of either, you know, current uh, companies that are currently backed by venture capital or large companies including things like Google and and Facebook that wouldn't exist were it not for uh, significant venture capital funding and yet limited partners the people who invest in the venture capital funds that in turn fund all those startups on average barely return money now there's a lot of data out there and a lot of obfuscation that suggests that perhaps venture is doing better than that but i think if you look at the real numbers you'll see that pretty consistently over time venture has not delivered uh, much value back on average to the the people who really take the risk with the capital and so you have to wonder Why is that the case? Tremendous asset value is being created, Uh, as we said, 25% of GDP. Where is it going? Well, a good chunk of it goes to the founders and there's certainly, you know, some fairness there and it's appropriate, but where's the rest of it going? Right. The answer is the rest of it's going primarily to the venture capital partners. And that's just fine as long as those venture capital partners are delivering uh, an adequate return to the people who ultimately put the cash in the limited partners. But in many cases, that's not the case. So why is that happening? Right? It's not that venture capitalists don't want to return a bunch of money to their investors. It's not that uh, venture capitalists aren't smart and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think it's rooted in a number of things, including the fact that the you have to wonder why it is that so much value is being created in the venture capital industry, but um, it doesn't seem to be being allocated efficiently. And so I started really thinking a lot about this. And what I what I noted was that the two in 20 model, which is how the traditional venture capital structure works, uh, which basically means that 2% of the capital invested by limited partners for each year of the duration of a fund uh, is allocated to management fees, which really is frankly a euphemism mostly for uh, partner salaries, just fine, right? As long as you're returning money to the LPs. And the, the 20% is the carry that would go to the general partners of the fund after returning their, the other part to the limited partners. The problem with that is that naturally, if you are being compensated in part, your are guaranteed compensation on a year-to-year basis as a general partner is based on the total assets under management, you're going to have a natural inclination to have as many assets as possible under management to maximize your, your management fees. The problem with that is that means that the funds tend to grow. Right. For each partner, uh, if you do fund one, you're size X, you do fund two, you're going to be size maybe two X per partner. And then maybe you add another partner. And so suddenly the funds start growing pretty significantly. For don't know and like there's why, a direct, why does that matter? Why is that a problem? So the reason that's a problem is because there's a direct correlation between the size of a fund and the minimum size of the investments it can efficiently make. Right. So now you can't make if, investments that are smaller than that is that you can't do it on an efficient basis because that, that 2% management fee becomes, um, a ceiling for the number of people that you can have on staff, right? Almost all of that cash has to go towards the key people in the, in the company. Cause it really, you know, on one hand it is a lot, but on the other hand, it's not a lot, right? So you only can do so many deals. You can only manage so many deals and you have this fixed overhead constraint. And so and as you, as you get bigger, you have to do bigger deals because it's not like one person can suddenly go from doing, you know, 5 deals a year to doing 10 deals a year that's just not feasible. And just the math, and they don't know just to put like numbers to it so
0: like a 25 million dollar fund they have to operate under the 220 model on call it 500k a year for operating and that's that's rent
1: that's out. that's uh service fees that's rent that's the paying the salaries of a partner or two that's maybe, you know, an associate or yep. two. And that just doesn't go very far, right? So the odds that you're going to be able to have enough cash and to have enough people, so not even odds, you can't have enough cash to have enough people to do a lot of deals at a fund size like that. And so as you get bigger, the, the size of your, your your minimum check size, to be clear, minimum efficient check size goes up. And that means that you have to move later in the risk curve, right? So you can't invest in the earliest kinds of companies. You have to move, let's say you have to move from seed to series A, right? And then if you get bigger, you have to really realistically move from series A to really big series A, which uh, I think a lot, of, a lot of venture funds have had to do. And so in my opinion, many, many people who refer to themselves as venture capitalists out in the market probably are not technically venture capitalists. They're probably really growth equity investors. Right. Again, nothing wrong with a growth equity investor and frankly, nothing wrong with referring to it as venture capital, if that's what you prefer, for as long as everybody understands what you're doing. But a problem does arise. So as you move later in the risk curve, your returns naturally are going to decline. It's just the way the math works. The problem is if you've told your limited partners that you're a venture capitalist, and you're going to offer venture capital returns, then you're going to try to act accordingly. And that act accordingly ends up being you the tendency is to push a whole bunch of money into the companies to invest overinvest potentially in the companies. Do what I call breaking the cap table, right, where you you put too much money in a company and then you inject too much risk saying this thing's got to go to the moon. Actually, maybe Jupiter in order for this whole thing to make sense because we invested late at a very high valuation. And really, we probably shouldn't be expecting this sort of return from it, but we have to give this sort of return in order to make this thing, quote, move the needle. And so as a result, you're gonna see a lot of excessive risk taking, a lot of destruction of companies along the path towards the moonshots. And it's now, you know, many VCs will say, the norm, what we should expect is, you know, one in 10 to, to pay for the entire portfolio. If you actually look at the math, it's more like one in 25. And yet what they're really saying is they're saying that's just the norm, that's what, what we should expect. And it's, it's how things should work. Unfortunately, I think that's at the root of the returns problem. If you look at uh, venture capital funds for all but a a very small set of funds, the returns are, are rather volatile between funds. So fund one might do really well. And frankly, if fund one doesn't do well, you probably won't have a fund two. Right. But then fund two might not do that well. But they're still riding on fund one and fund two. You don't know yet. So you raise fund three. Right. Well, so maybe fund three does pretty darn well. And then fund four doesn't do as well. But over time, that, that's a pretty typical pattern. Well, in that context, the, the general partners of the funds are making fine money, frankly, for each fund. And then they're also making the, these potentially incredible returns for the funds that do really well. And, and so are the, the LPs. But the LPs, on average, are investing in all of the funds, right? And as a result, that there's a sort of an attenuation of, of, of their returns. You know, the other thing, well, I mean, I could, I could go on forever, but uh, you, you'll see how this manifests into the unicorn economy, which I think is one of the more ridiculous economic pursuits I've ever seen. I mean, maybe it's sort of, it doesn't beat out the tulip economy, but it but it's not that What far do off. you mean by that? Just for folks that are curious. Yeah, so my opinion is that uh, when some of the regulatory uh, overhead increased to the point where it became much more difficult to go public. had to achieve a a much greater scale and it was more expensive. It took away one of the very important liquidity tools, return uh, models for venture capitalists. And frankly, if it were easy to go public today and more companies could go public at a somewhat more modest scale, it's possible that some of these problems that I'm pointing out in in the venture landscape would be not as significant or even go away. It's just not the case. It's very hard and expensive to go public. And so VCs who were relying historically on a certain number of their companies going public, couldn't rely on that anymore. And yet they needed to get some sort of liquidity and, or at least prove to their limited partners that the asset value they were creating was significant, right? That they were going to get returns and short of selling it, you know, to, to a strategic or even like less desirably to a financial buyer, they found an alternative and that's the unicorn economy where. What they do is they go and do very public, very high-priced rounds of, you know, a billion dollars, billion-dollar-plus valuations, and then they report to their limited partners, look, look, what a good job we did. We invested in this thing at, you know, $80 million, and now it's worth $1.2 billion. Clearly, it's worth $1.2 billion because other parties invested at in that valuation. Unfortunately, there are often shenanigans that go on in those valuations. I, I know this, well, for one, one thing, is just logic, but the other thing is that, you know, we do evaluate on behalf of our investors and and friends, sometimes some of these deals. And if you look under the hood and you know what to look for, you'll see things that that turn what looks like a $1.2 billion valuation into nothing of the sort. Examples would be guaranteed returns uh, on IPO or exit. So yeah, sure. You know, if you want to mark this as a $1.2 billion valuation price that I'm paying, that's fine, you can market that, that way all day long. But really what you've, you've signed up for in some cases is a guaranteed return of 7X or something like that, that it, it, it's irrespective of the actual exit valuation. That's an exaggeration, or actually not really an exaggeration, but it is it, it is sometimes not, not as simple as that, but it, it often works that way. And so the VCs have an incentive to report these rounds. I have these rounds and report these rounds, right? And you know sometimes they're entirely legitimate. I don't think they're legitimate very often. I think many, many, many of the unicorns out in the economy are not worth anywhere near what they're currently marked at. And I think we're seeing that you know, play out over time in the markets. And then you ask yourself, well, why would the asset allocators allow this? Why would the limited partners say, oh, great, look, look how much money we're making. And the answer is it's that you've got a a clue in that. I've started calling the LPs asset allocators at this point, right? Because, um, the larger investors into many of these larger funds that are, you know, doing the, the, the unicorn playing the unicorn game are asset allocators. these are professional investors who work for a firm or a consulting consultant, uh, we're making decisions about how to allocate the money. And these people are, uh, in many cases not the most senior people in the organization, and they have a career that they're managing legitimately. And so if they come in and they they create craft a portfolio that includes some venture assets, it's definitely in their interest to also report to their superiors and whoever else, their board. Look, I made these investments in these six venture capital funds, and and look how well they're doing. I did a really good job. And then potentially use that to go get their next position at the next company at a at a step up in role and compensation and frankly in many cases leave behind a pile of crud and then the next person who comes in says wow joe really didn't do a very good job with his portfolio but i'm gonna do a much better job so i'm gonna i'm gonna fix all of this and then frankly rinse and repeat that's a cynical view and it's not you know obviously 100 true but um there, there's some real truth to it based on the conversations I've had and the and what I've seen out in the market. So what you've got is you've got an early stage, frankly not always early stage venture industry that is is performing much more poorly than it could. So I think what we really should focus on now, because I know I'm blathering a bit, is what are the opportunities in early stage and why did we go do this? And what did Yeah, we do? I mean, yeah.
0: So, so so before we get into kind of what we're doing now. Founder equity was kind of a first attempt at trying to address some of these issues. So what was the premise behind founder equity? So
1: the, the core premise behind founder equity was if we think that the two and 20 structure leads to conflicts of interest and structural problems in venture capital, then we shouldn't use it. That's step one, right? Step two is that we think the real returns are in the early stage, the real early stage. So what would probably be called pre-seed and seed today, right? Let's just say, for the sake of of argument, valuations, pre-money valuations on startups that range from the low end, maybe $3 million to the high, high end, maybe $10 or $12 million. And the return profiles for those are extraordinary. If you successfully invest in a business at that stage, or really if you make an investment in a business at that stage and then it turns out to be successful, you can expect you know 10x money and and great irrs or 100x thousand x sometimes and the problem is that the companies at that stage have problems they they have flaws their business models are incomplete they often have you know significant uh, uncertainties and as we all know you can't price uncertainty so it's very hard to figure out what to pay for them figure out which ones are the right ones and then once you invest in them it's very hard to help them right particularly if you're a small fund as you have to be, to invest under the two and 20 model early. So we decided to try to flip all that on its back and say, all right, well, we're going to try to be big in terms of resources and people. And we're going to have, try to have a full broad set of skills and capabilities on our team. And we're going to try to, to write the smaller checks really early that can be priced really, really well. Uh, and we're also going to try to to do real diligence early on. Unfortunately, I found I found out in the market that most venture capital firms that I'm aware of at the seed stage simply don't have the time and resources to do the the level of thorough diligence that we think is required to assess the the prospects of of one of these early stage companies, and that just doesn't work for us, as you know. So for founder equity, we, equity, we decided not to charge any fees, which, frankly, people thought was insane and maybe it was. In fact, I had some people decline to invest or really resist investing because like this doesn't make sense. How can you not charge any fees? And the answer was, well, because we have digital intent, which supports our operations, enables us to have this big team, and we'd rather focus on the performance compensation side of the of the coin. And so we did that. It probably was unfair to us in the end, but it did work out. We made a bunch of, you know, you know, very, very good investments, a few weren't as good of course and we also were able to put in practice and to perfect our diligence deal review and post deal support systems so we launched that fund in 2013 late 2013 i think we made a total of maybe 14 investments in that fund and we found that over time we were able to optimize both the investment process how we chose those investments but also very, very importantly, how we supported them post-investment. So we ended up in several cases, creating the product using our team for the portfolio companies that we invested in and then transitioning our team onto their payroll. And in fact, one of those was our CTO the company was subsequently acquired by a large public company. And that, that CTO is now a senior technology person at that public company and so that sort of proved us that you know we were able to not only make good investments but we were able to significantly accelerate and de-risk them which is obviously critical because one of the things that uh, I saw as an early stage VC is they they don't just need money they need help and if you can help them get over that that chasm the bridge between potential and a working business model you can create some tremendous asset value yeah it's
0: neat we uh, one of the deals that we did i think last year They were oversubscribed and they actually made an allocation for us on the recommendation of one of the other funds that had said, I think the wording was that we were the most proactively helpful fund that they had encountered.
1: Yeah, not only that, but that the fund that said that is is a major national fund invests with what they do. They co-invest with other major funds, very well known all over the United States, and they work with hundreds of other. Funds and they said we're the most proactively helpful fund they've worked with, and I think the reason is because that's what we set out to do. We set out to build a, a framework where we could have 60, 70 people full time on staff—designers, you know, software engineers, data scientists, marketers, everything—on staff so that when we when we evaluate a deal, we can understand its its flaws, but really understand its flaws and do something about it, and then. Post investment, we have we have a plan to execute in partnership with the founders to support them and help them cross that that bridge. And so, it's for as for example, I was on the phone with a partner at a very very successful early stage fund, and she has COVID right now and is not feeling that great, but is having to do diligence because it's she they're what they're two of them it's the entire team, and she just looked so down. I said, look, hey don't stress, you know, we'll do the diligence. We have a massive team of people who are trained to do this diligence. You just write down the questions that you have. These are great questions we're all discussing. You send them our way. We'll do the diligence. You rest, right? And and she said, yeah, but some of this is some really complicated diligence. Yeah, well, we're, we have that question about the product. We'll have our software team and our product experts dive in and figure out, you know, the pros and cons of the product, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And she just, she was just blown away. She said, I I don't, I can't even imagine having resources like that to do diligence. It's, it's you, it's just my partner and and me. We did a hardware
0: investment a few years ago and he, he had mentioned that we were the only fund that was able or capable or interested in kind of digging into the underlying hardware and the underlying code to see what was actually there and was able to have by far the kind of most nuanced conversation with him about the underlying tech and it wasn't me I <laughs> didn't understand the first thing about it but but we had people on the team that could so um transitioning kind of today I think we started to see some other kind of synergies and opportunities and things like that and and without stealing kind of any of your thunder like what what was what what led to what is now becoming kind of manifold and what was the genesis of kind of this evolution of what it is that
1: we're doing so for one thing, it, I think it started with this recognition that in order to succeed in the early stage, you need to have a, a diverse team with a broad set of skills who are, you know, real experts to diligence and then help these investments, post investment, very support them very actively. And so we built a consultancy in part to do that, but in part because we saw a huge opportunity for to help enterprises disrupt themselves and and, and, and create new markets. And then we started realizing, wait, maybe it's much bigger than that. So, uh, if you look at the, the the modern economy, pretty much all of the alpha has left the public building, right? Uh, and alpha is is a financial term that describes the the differentiated return, right, that you can get in a in a, with a particular strategy or model or asset. And the reason Alpha has left the public markets is because data transparency, artificial intelligence, algorithmic trading, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, mean that it is extremely, extremely hard to find edge, right? It's very hard to have an advantage over others uh, when there's so much data available and there's so many tools to uh, evaluate it. And so that's one of the big factors, right? So it's increasingly true that in order to make Alpha returns in in this market. You, you know you need to rely on operators, right? The people who are actually operating a company, making the decisions day to day. That that we have not yet solved with artificial intelligence. I'm sure it'll happen someday, but we've got some time. And then if you look at the places where the greatest alpha is, it's in the places where the operators are the most critical, right? And that it happens to be the early stage. And the reason for that is because the early stage involves uncertainty and complexity, a level and nature of information processing that we simply have not even come close to approximating uh, with technology yet. And, you know, whereas at a large company that's operating a known business model, you can employ modularity theory, which suggests that you take each of the actions that you engage in or activities you engage in and you encapsulate them and separate them. So that you can optimize each one and then you sort of have a black box sort of service oriented architecture approach to to running your business it's the status quo in in modern enterprise theory in the early stage you can't do that because if you make any changes in marketing in the early stage they're very likely to have implications for every other part of your business pricing you know everything and as such you need a, a smaller tighter less modular team and Then we started realizing, wait, there's something else going on here. There are layers and layers of technology, information, technology, and otherwise that have been accumulating. And there are layers and layers of social change that have been accumulating as well. And where it might seem that, you know, the big new innovations, you know, came and went know, electrification, sanitation, et cetera. And really what we're doing now is is it's far more modest. For example, you know, Peter Thiel is, is famous for, for saying we wanted flying cars and all we got was 140 characters. I think what's really happening, I think we collectively think what's really happening is it, it, there's a logarithmic or an exponential curve that we're, we're, we're only seeing the bottom part of it right now. We're starting to see the real curve up where as these these social changes Uh, globalization and technology uh, improvements all compound, suddenly they have these massive implications, right? So you take, for example, VR and AR, you know, computing power, storage power, connectivity, material science, all all sorts of things had to change in order for you to be able to have a rather bulky now AR kit on your face. Pretty soon that's going to be glasses. And I think not too far off from that, it's going to be contact lenses or something similar. And as that starts to roll out in the market, that has massive implications that and every other, you know, similar technology has massive implications for our businesses. And by that, I mean, enterprises too. So what to you get to the brass tacks? I think the new mode of business is disrupt or die. And I think it applies to even the very largest companies. If you look at the average tenure of of companies on the S&P 500, it's declined from somewhere around 70 years to something more like 10 years. Basically what we're seeing is compounding technology and social changes are causing, presenting significant existential threats to enterprises. Enterprises that before could rely on their heft and scale and relationships and whatever it is, their assets to survive and thrive, even in the face of of upstart competition, are no longer able to do that in many cases. In fact, many of those assets that used to be defensive for these enterprises have become liabilities, right? And yet, these enterprises have tremendous assets and resources that can be employed. They just are, I think, somewhat different now. One example would be data. Many of these enterprises have extraordinary access to very valuable data that that startups and most people or organizations simply can't access. Um, in many cases, they do a, a quite a poor job of using it. Right for the same reasons that they're very good at at operating the known business model that they 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 do operate, they're often poor do a poor job of creating new business models and et cetera. And so we saw that as a huge opportunity for us to go to these enterprises that have data, smart people, relationships, brands, reach, whatever, all these assets that they have that might not be organized and structured efficiently and uh, might not be efficiently digitized. Right. But nonetheless, are, are very powerful, latent opportunities and go to them and say, hey, look, we can help you because we have a very different modality. We operate in a very different world. We are disruptors. We live disruption. We're very comfortable with uncertainty. And we know how to transform uncertainty into risk and then un- and risk into uh, return. And if you partner with us or we partner with you, depending on how you look at it, there's tremendous value that we can unlock. And we can do it a lot of different ways. We can help you grow. We can help you create new business models. We can help you create entire you know, new sidecar companies. We can help you become better investors, uh, venture investors, et cetera. And by doing so, we also can learn a tremendous amount about the markets and their needs. And in many cases, we might be able to identify business opportunities for us to create new products in our studio, for example, or new investment targets that we should seek for our venture fund. So it's a very synergistic relationship that we often have with our enterprise clients. We bring them interesting startups, technologies, businesses. We create interesting startups and technologies with and for them. And then, you know, that also feeds our studio and it feeds our venture group. We have certain enterprises that will reach out to us from time to time and say, hey, we would like to buy companies that look like this because there's a problem that we have and we would like to own assets like this. Please go find some, invest in them, and then bring them to us once you've got them to scale. That's a great solution for them. It's also a great solution uh, for us. And that couldn't exist without an organization that spans across venture incubation studio and advisory services.
0: The, uh, you mentioned the studio, that's, that's sort of, we've had, you know, so you have the advisory business, you have the venture um, operation, and now we're talking about this third group called the studio that we started working on last year and are going to be working on kind of uh, in earnest uh, this year. What was the gap in terms of what we were doing that you think studio in particular fills uh, to kind of round out this, this sort of flywheel
1: that you've been talking about? Well, for one thing, it's, it's about, where your basis is. So the best returns, by far, of any player in this ecosystem is is the founders. If you are a successful founder, you will make a lot of money, right? And I, naturally, we'd like to be a part of that. We'd like to to have some of that quote founder equity. That's that's part of the the drive. The other part of the drive is that entrepreneurship is is, is tends to be serial, right? So I refer to myself as a serial entrepreneur, and you know, there's that is thought of as a great thing. Wow, you learned, you learned how learn what not to do over several, you know, occasions. Um, the, I think the best serial entrepreneurs are the ones who've had a few failures under their belt, uh, for example. And however, what if you could be a parallel entrepreneur as an organization? What if you could do multiple startups at all times? at once without losing focus. You'd have to be a big organization. You have to be very well organized. You'd have to create probably create some new you know, methodologies, which we've, we've done over the last 10 years. But what if you could build, for example, infrastructure? You could have tooling, you could have best practices, you could have training systems to create a system that can reliably conceive, build, and grow successful new business models that would be extremely valuable and that is indeed what we have to a certain extent done and are are trying to to perfect now so it's 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 one of the core asset value uh, creation activities we engage in Uh, but it's also a really useful tool for example for our advisory clients if they come to us or we come to them and we typically we're coming to them we're going to say look there's all these opportunities we see these opportunities it's very obvious that, that that you can create some value if you were were to try, you know, these five or ten things, you know, in, in many cases you, you know, they're they're ill-equipped to do those themselves. It's very useful that we are well-equipped to do those, and we can do those either for them, they can pay us to do it, or or we might say, look, we'll take the risk, we'll do it, and then if you like it, you can invest in it or buy it or or, or whatever. So the the studio incubation capability uh, is very useful, you know, to our enterprise clients. For ourselves, but then also for our portfolio companies, because when we're very used to rolling out new products, growing things, creating new businesses, then that translates very readily into supporting our portfolio companies. Because, for example, they may come to us and say, you know, hey, we've got this application that is adjacent to our core application uh, that we really need built. It would open up a, a new market for us or create a- improve improve our defensibility or whatever benefit that would accrue. And they say, but we just don't have the cycles to focus on it. Could you do it for us? Sure. And we've done that. And we've opened up new markets, entire new markets for our portfolio companies. And we've done it in ways, uh, we've done it as partners because we have a very powerful vested interest in their success. We're very good at it. We're often, frankly, better than they are at it just because we've had so many, so much practice and we do it all the time. And so the, the studio, is it's basically our practice in being entrepreneurs, which we can employ for ourselves, we can employ for our advisory clients, or we can employ on behalf of our portfolio.
0: What other, you know, there, you, you've, you've talked about, internally at least, you've talked about this flywheel effect that you think can, can sort of manifest itself, um, assuming that we do it right, and we're starting to see some early evidence of that. But what do you mean by that
1: when you talk about this flywheel? Well, uh, most most successful you know business models have some form of flywheel effect or multiple flywheel effects and I think our business should be the same so we went and thought well what is it that we could do at various points in our system right because in the end a business model is a system that would be self-reinforcing and increase you know our success which then increases our success which then increases our success so that's that was a goal of ours and if we do a when we do a great job with our portfolio companies, the other venture funds that invested alongside us see it. It's very, very evident to them. So guess what? They send us more of their deals. Uh, when we do great diligence and we are very you know friendly and, and open and transparent and we share that diligence with them and share our perspectives and our specific expertise with them, they want to do more deals with us. So they give us more deals, so we get better deal flow, right? And then when we make an investment in a portfolio company and we are truly helpful, where they tell us after that, you said you would be helpful. I didn't really believe it, but oh my Lord, you guys have been so helpful, right? Well, they tell all their friends, they bring their next company to us. They tell the the other VCs and the other people in the industry that they're talking to. And so we get better deal terms on the deals that we make. We get, we get more of the deals that we pitch, right? And by the way, we also get more of the deals that we pitch because we do things like, we come in and we truly understand their business. We truly dive in. And the smart founders say, wow, that's the kind of people I want to work with. You you actually understand my hardware supply chain and you understand where the problems are and you're still investing, but you're also suggesting you know, solutions to some of the, the challenges or risks that we have here. And then, all right, so we've got great deal flow. We've got great diligence and we've got very happy founders. And then because we're we're big and we have a big network, we can do things like get them pilots either with our our clients or with our clients' friends or or whatever because we have a big reach into enterprise. We can help them understand how to sell into enterprise because we sell into enterprise. As advise, you know, our advisory group does. We can then help them to sell their company. We're much bigger than the average seed fund that they've dealt with. And we also have a more closely aligned interest with our founders generally than most VCs do, because we've gotten in at a point that's much closer to when the founders' equity was established. And as a result, if one of our portfolio company CEOs comes to us, look, I've got an offer to buy, you know, to I've got an offer to sell this company for $100 million. Great, we'll make a lot of money. Great IRR. Great return on capital. Everybody's happy. Uh, If that's what you think is the right approach, you know, but at the same time, we're big and we have a big, broad portfolio. So they come to us and they say, I have an offer to sell this company for one hundred million dollars, but I see this thing going to three billion. I really want to take it all the way. Great. We'll make a lot of money if you do that, too. Right. And so then you have these um, sort of this alignment of interest, sort of clarity of focus. And then they do really, really well. We do really, really well. Our LPs hear about this they give us more capital capital to do this with, right? And then rinse and repeat. You get this flywheel effect where we're getting better deals, we're doing better diligence, we're, we're having happier founders, we're getting better outcomes. And then that tends to be self, self-reinforcing. self So that's one, there's more to the flywheel, but that's the core of it. Yeah, I mean, it seems like specifically, a lot of
0: the folks that listen to this, I think come from the, the corporate or the enterprise side and and seeing the benefit of pattern recognition on the venture side, kind of informing the advice that we might give when they're kind of evaluating potential opportunities. And, and you mentioned kind of the, you know, the operator mentality, you know, from studio and how that can also benefit when it's time to actually go and build the thing. Because I mean, a lot of, you know, consulting or advisory practices know how to do professional services, but that does not mean that, you know, how to, for example, build like a B2B SaaS business, right. And, and they don't have that kind of operational expertise and they don't,
1: or how, yeah, so you're you're touching on I think one of the one of the things that has been really evident to me and I think almost everybody who operates in in our part of the industry, and that is that there's a really, really big difference between IT and tech. And large companies tend to be pretty good at IT and tend to be really bad at tech. And by IT I mean information technology, keeping the lights on. Integrating systems, you know, that are already existing, and you know, make known context risk, you know, intolerant uh, infrastructure-related you know, technology projects. Tech is, to me, creating new products with great user experiences that push the boundaries of what's been done before. And people who are really good at IT generally are really bad at tech. And frankly, people who are really good at tech are often pretty bad at IT. You know, just different mindsets, different approaches, et cetera. And you'll find a lot of these, you know, IT departments, these enterprises trying to build products. And frankly, they almost always fail. I mean, you look at the failure rate, it's extraordinarily high. And then even the internal product teams, the internal tech teams at some of these enterprises, while they they tend to be quite competent individuals and they tend to be, you know, they're great coders and they, they've they probably come from a place where they 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 were able to build you know, great tech products before, the budgetary process, infrastructure, you know, incentive structure, the risk management structures of an enterprise basically make them unable to deploy new tech effectively, right? It takes forever, the costs are way high, and the, the level of quality of the output is is very, very poor. And it's not frankly an indictment of the people, it's really more of, more of a, a reality of the infrastructure and the, the focus, that they employ. So you mentioned IRR a little while ago. I know you know
0: one of the one of your kind of fundamental beliefs about what we're trying to kind of set up here is is optimizing for IRR, which is a little bit different than I think how a lot of similar types of organizations might assess themselves. What why why do you why do you believe
1: that? So you know this is a contentious subject for a lot of people, and I'll acknowledge that. I will take the counter position for the moment, just to establish try to establish a fair rapport here, a fair fair conversation here it's true. People say you can't eat IRR. And by that, you mean, mean it's like, so the percentage return is not real money, right? You know, the compounding rate of of asset value creation uh, of your return is, is really immaterial because if you, if it occurs over the course of a minute, you know, it might be a penny and then who cares, right? But I think the flip side of that is that if you ignore time, right? And if you simply talk about your return on capital, I made 10 times my money. That's great or not. Because if you took too long to make it, it's really not a good return at all. What IRR does is enables us to compare our performance against benchmarks, right? So, you know, if I tell you a house costs a million dollars, you might say, well, that's really, really expensive. And then I tell you, well, it's a $15,000 square foot house, you might say, oh, well, I mean, that's maybe not as bad as I thought. It's still expensive, right? And so number one, it provides us a, a, a means of, of assessing our performance that is that incorporates time, right? Time value of money is very important and also is benchmarkable, right? So if we're making a choice between a capital allocation to something that's gonna give us a 20% IRR or an 80% IRR, we're almost certainly gonna go for the one that's gonna give us the 80% IRR, unless the time frame is so short uh, for the 80% IRR that it really is, it, you, you can't eat it, right? And then the reason why it particularly works for us is because unlike closed-end funds, we're not a closed-end fund, who have to, in the end, report, I made, I deployed this much money over three to four years, you know, I, I harvested it over these years and now I'm done. Here's my return on capital, right? that makes sense because you you sort of have a notion of the timeframe in, in the first place, right? So there's an implied sort of IRR from that. We don't have that implied IRR because we might hold things for an extended period of time if it's, if it's smart enough to do so. Right. And we have a, a probably we will have, we don't at the moment yet, we have a pretty big portfolio, but we will have a much bigger portfolio than the typical venture fund because it'll they'll be accrete over time. And we will, Uh, according to our model, be able to eat whatever IRR we're generating, right? Because even if we have a fairly short hold period, if the IRR is good enough, we can then recycle that investment, which most funds can't do. So we have a different structure and that structure allows us to think more in terms of IRR. And frankly, allows us to think in terms of much, much higher IRRs than most funds could rationally target. So our target is a 50% IRR, which is obviously quite high. And frankly, so far, we're beating it pretty dramatically. We'll see over time. Well, time will tell. The other thing that's worth mentioning is there is another reason why uh, many funds don't mention their IRRs, and that's because they aren't very good. So the, many venture funds might say, oh, look, I, I returned 3.5x money, right, over 14 years because the duration of venture funds tends to be growing. So the hold periods tend to be going up and then you start really doing the math and the IRRs really aren't that great. And they're, they're, frankly, in many cases, not much better than the S&P 500 or the Russell 2000. In some cases, they're worse, even if they have that whatever 3.5x or 4x uh, return
0: profile. So, you know, we've been doing this for 10 years together. We have folks that have been on the team for seven years, eight years. What do the next 10 years look like from your perspective?
1: So I think we took 10 years to really get this thing right. Um, It's a bit of our personality to really try to figure out a system uh, before we grow it too aggressively. I think we transitioned into growth sometime like something like middle of last year, uh, late last year. We are raising a a substantial amount of capital uh, for this over the next three years, maybe as much as $500 million. Our goal is to expand significantly in all three divisions or departments, venture, incubation and advisory and also to expand significantly geographically. We are launching an office in Atlantic Canada. We've been working on that for over six months. We're looking at other uh, geographies where we think there's tremendous opportunity, uh, significant social and economic and technological change occurring across the world, a lot of return opportunities. You know, they're, Frankly, the best returns in our opinions are not to be found in the traditional venture hubs like San Francisco and, and New York City, prices for deals are very high there, cost of living and operating is very high there. And yet there's tremendous things happening in other geographies, both like Chicago, Dallas, LA, where we have offices, but also in more tertiary uh, cities in other other countries. So we're actively going to be going after that. And then we're also gonna be employing some probably more novel strategies that are creative and and, and synergistic with what we're doing, Uh, looking probably at venture debt and secondary market investing and trading and venture assets over time. And so the idea is if we can build an infrastructure and in a set of skilled people who, who can do all three things, each will be better and each of them will be better at each of the things that they do. We will have a significant lower operating costs. Like right now, we effectively, if you think of us as a fund, which we aren't technically, but in some ways we resemble one, we have no no fees. And we have no fees because our income covers all of our people. And that means we can allocate all of the capital we bring in to asset value creation, new asset value creation, which is a pretty nice place to be. And then we have all these synergistic effects and flywheel effects I've talked about. So we see ourselves becoming a multi-billion dollar organization over the next five years. Good stuff, Joe. Well, um, it's been a fun
0: journey for the the last 10 years, and I'm looking forward to kind of launching into this new brave world with you. Thanks for doing this. Uh, for folks that maybe want to learn more about how you think about the world, where can I point them? Twitter?
1: Somewhat on Twitter. I think the best thing is our new Manifold Group website uh, should have some, some, I'm going to be putting some content up on that. I think that's probably going to be the best place to do it. Been a bit busy lately with all this transition and fundraising and, and new strategy stuff. So Very cool. All right, Joe, thanks for doing this. Really appreciate it.
0: That's it for this episode of The Disruptors. For more information about Manifold and how we can help your organization grow, visit us at manifold.group. And if you enjoyed this episode, would love a review on Spotify or iTunes or whatever podcast platform you use. Thanks for listening as always. We'll see you next time.